Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Today, we're going to enjoy one of my favorite podcasts that I've recorded so far. We're going to be speaking with Quan Huyn. I met Quan when participating in an entrepreneurship program with DeFi Ventures at Kern Valley State Prison in California. Quan's is an amazing story of redemption, the importance of second chances, and the power of entrepreneurship. After spending 22 years in and out of correctional institutions, Quan was paroled from a life sentence for murder in 2015, and he created his first company six months after. The following year, he received the Peace Fellowship Award for his work with the Alternatives to Violence Project. Quan is the author of his memoir, Sparrow and the Razor Wire, and he is the post-release program manager for Defy Ventures, a nonprofit helping those with a criminal past transform their lives through the journey of entrepreneurship. We'll be talking about his early life, his journey into and out of the criminal justice system, his path to a better life through entrepreneurism, his book, and what he would do to improve our justice system. Prepare for a difficult but uplifting story. Enjoy my interview with Quan Huynh. Welcome aboard, Quan. Thank you for having me. So I said in our introduction that you've got an amazing story. It's one that came out of a lot of tragedy and tumultuousness and bad decisions, but it's got a huge redemptive quality to it. Maybe take us through a little bit, Quan, just your origins, where you came from, and how you ended up in California, and then ultimately how you ended up in the prison system. I'm a first-generation Vietnamese immigrant. We came here to the United States after we lost our country. My father was involved with the South Vietnamese Army, so we were able to come over here right away. We flew out here to the United States, and I was maybe several months old, the firstborn. My younger brother and sister were born in Provo, Utah. That's where we actually settled. We lived there because my mother had never seen snow before. My father, who had traveled to the U.S. already when training with a a lot of the uh, U.S. forces, knew what the United States was like. So he goes, okay, let's go to Utah. So that's how we ended up in Provo, Utah. Vietnamese family right after the Vietnam War and Roman Catholic. And, you know, of course, Utah is mostly Mormon. Right. So you grew up in Provo. How did you make it to California? So my father got diagnosed with leukemia when I was eight years old. So we moved out here to California when I was 10. That was for him to get closer to his family members because he has family he had family that lived here in California at the time. So we settled in Southern California. So you're in Southern California. You're taking care of a father with a very difficult disease. And I'm sure probably trying to help shepherd your family through all that. How did you get involved with the gang element in Southern California. What was appealing about it and how were you introduced to it? And then how did it become so important in your life? In pro Utah, as a little kid, I never felt like I fit in with my peers. I remember wishing like, why couldn't I look normal like the kids all around me? Uh, Why couldn't our family look normal? When we moved out here to California, that was my first time actually going to school with other kids that had different, like whether it's black, Uh, Hispanic, other Asians, other Vietnamese kids. And I remember being teased for being Vietnamese because they said I couldn't speak Vietnamese well. 
A lot of them didn't speak English well, so I didn't feel like I fit in anywhere. My father's condition got worse with leukemia, and he ended up passing away when I was 13, when I was in eighth grade, right before I graduated. And so by that time, it was just my mother trying to take care of three kids. I ended up just running on uh, with kids that were running around on the streets. Was there a sense of acceptance? Were there people in the gang that, in a sense, took you in and provided something that wasn't there anymore from a family perspective? Well, with my friends, because at the time we didn't look at it as a gang. It was just like misfit kids, these outcast kids that we didn't really feel like we fit in, but we just got along with each other. Some of them had older brothers that I looked up to. And that's where my beginnings of getting involved with the criminal and gang lifestyle in Southern California with the um, Vietnamese gangs. I got arrested for the first time at the age of 17. Some of my friends ended up uh, shooting some local uh, skinhead kids that we didn't get along with from our high school. And they arrested me for a conspiracy involving with that. And then, so that's how I went into the juvenile house. And of course in there, it's split up by race. And now I'm hanging out with people that are also criminally minded. And those are the guys that later on became the foundation of what our gang was. So you're in the juvenile hall system, and then you ended up in and out of institutions for a little while. The murder that got you your longer 15 to life sentence, what was involved with that? Did things just sort of escalate and you were immune to feeling anything of remorse or anything like that? Or was this something that snuck up on you and you were taken by surprise? The circumstances got out of control. No, by the time I committed murder, I had become very calloused and cold. I mean, just over the years, stemming from the first arrest and just hanging out with the gang members and just becoming more violent as a gang member myself and just totally like embracing and taking on that identity, feeling like, you know, the world had nothing for me. I had this victim mentality that I got screwed by the American justice system with my first arrest. And because of that, I couldn't get employed or I couldn't get meaningful work. So I remember I was working at the Gallup organization in 1998 like before like their strengths finder and all this stuff came out uh i was their 1998 interviewer of the year and they had asked me to interview for a management position and i think for myself i thought finally for 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 once in my life something's gonna go right and you know i was like half in of the game world still half in half out and i interviewed for the position and they turned me down and it was all personality based so when they they turned me down though they said we're sorry, Quan, but you are not a fit, like a month after the interview. And that just messed me up in my head. Like, okay, I'm not, and it just hit that theme of me not fitting in, not being accepted. I didn't talk to anyone about it. I didn't disclose it with my girlfriend, my mom or anything. I just went down to the bar, got drunk. A week and a half later, I was up at a club with some of my friends. Some of them ended up getting into a fight with a different gang. And so I saw, okay, this is an opportunity for me to take out all these feelings that, that's going on inside of me out on somebody. I mean, that is just basically how I operate. Whenever I'm, I argued with somebody or if I had like a, let's say I argue with my girlfriend, then I would just call up my friends. We'd go out to like a pool hall or go out in the streets and look for somebody to start something with just to take out all these feelings of frustration. You know, I, at the time in my life, I didn't know how to talk about feelings or understand where I was. And for years, I never understood like, that I was an angry person. I just thought, oh, the angry person is the one that screams and yells. Not ever knowing that, okay, I, here I am on the other end of it, never speaking, just becoming angry inside and holding it and then unleashing it in the most violent and lethal way. That night, I orchestrated and followed this other gang on the freeway for about 20, 25 miles. 
before we pulled up alongside him and I shot inside, killing one man named Min Nguyen and injuring a couple others in the car. Wow. And so the authorities find you, they arrest you, and you go through the criminal justice system, which eventually lands you in prison. Maybe talk a little bit about what happened in the courtroom, maybe, and your experience there. I'm sure when you hear guilty and then sentenced to 15 to life, those are very powerful statements to absorb. What were you feeling at that point? How did you digest that? They tried me for the death penalty, prosecuted me for special circumstance murder, uh, lying in wait for the benefit of a street gang and all that. Fortunately, they didn't find me guilty of all the special allegations that they had, not because they weren't true. It was because by that time I had got rid of evidence and lied on the stand at trial and coached witnesses and everything. So the jury believed that I was not the shooter. So they sentenced me under the felony murder rule and they sentenced me 15 years to life. So when I was given that sentence, because here in the state of California, a life sentence was the same as a death sentence. Like nobody was paroling from California since, nobody had paroled in California since 1977 at that time. So when I heard 15 to life, I was just known as a lifer, like on the cut, on the prison yards, like all of us were just washed up. 90 to life, uh, 200 to life, or life without possibility for all, we were all in the same boat because we were not going home. And so when you go into prison this time, which is probably different from the other times because you felt that this was a life sentence, what was going through your mind at this point? Did you have that hard shell built? And where was your mind at as you walked through the doors? They sent me up to Pelican Bay, which was notorious for housing the most violent gang members at the time. And my mindset was, if this is where they house the most violent gang members in the state of California, I want to make sure that I fit right in. I do not want to be... My mindset was just, I'm going to be the hardest person in here, no matter what it takes. Even though I was part, I was scared and, and, and fearful, but I, and I imagine the vast majority of us were feeling that way. But no one ever expressed it like that. So I just I just like, OK, I'm going to be since I'm going to die in here, I'm going to make sure that I live as comfortably as possible. So your book goes through a variety of different stories while you're in prison. Are there any in particular that stick out? And then where did you flip the switch? Or was this a gradual process where you had some self-discovery and you started to take a different turn? Yeah, I mean, there's so many incidents. It wasn't like a gradual uh of course, gradually, I became even more and more hardened. It wasn't until like the 10th, 11th year of my life sentence is where I would have to say that the beginning of my change began. And what prompted that? Years 10 and 11, was this exposure to family? Were there things that they brought to you? Were these books that you read? What helped to change things a little bit for you? Around that time is when I first saw a picture of my little niece, and she was like a spitting image of my younger brother. And when I saw her, it just took me back to my childhood and, and remembering like growing up in Utah, like how did my life end up like this? Also around that time, I was around 35, around the same age that my father had passed away. So I remember also thinking my father during his time on earth had contributed and made such a huge impact on the community. He created the Vietnamese Refugee Association in Utah. He helped a lot of the immigrants do a lot of stuff like their tax documents, their, their driver's license, like do a bunch of documents that they didn't know how to read or take care of their social security. And then here it is me on the flip side. What did I do? And 
I ended up going to prison for murder and I'm in here with a life sentence. Luckily, one thing that always helped me to escape were books. I read my whole prison term. I mean, I've always been a bookworm my whole life. And during that time, I had this habit when I'm reading, if I find a subject fascinating or an author or a book fascinating, I'll look in the acknowledgments, see who else influenced them, what other books they cite. And I go down these rabbit trails. And during that time, I always loved like books on entrepreneurship and business even while inside, but somewhere along the way, I got went down a rabbit trail on stories about the saints, and in particular, saints that had failed in some way before they went on to build their orders or went on to leave a legacy. So then, of course, that leads me into books on mindfulness and spirituality, and my mind just started looking at, like, wait, prison like doesn't have to feel like this, and so it was just one day on the prison yard, my mind filled up with these meditations and readings that I had been involved with. And I told myself, like, why do I have to view prison as punishment? Why can't this be a place where I can remake myself, even if I'm supposed to die in here? Of course, the answer comes back from the universe that I can make something of myself. So, of course, that morning, the sun was just coming up over the hills. I was able to feel the warmth from it. And then... In the individual blades of grass, I could see the little drops of dew. And up above me in the razor wire is when I heard a sparrow chirping. And I tell everyone, like, the sparrow had probably been chirping my whole prison term, but I'd never heard it. But that day, I heard it. From that day, prison was not this cold, harsh, ugly place. It became a place where I could connect to other human beings around me, many of them much further along in their journey, and perhaps some of them not even awakened yet. But... I looked at now, I said, wait, this is all just a journey we're on. This is just an experience. Like what we call prison can still be a place where I could begin to find my freedom. And that is exactly what happened. And it wasn't like, okay, now I get this little spark and everything's changed. But now that's where the process began for me where, okay, now let's go back to explore this. Let's go back first. Let's begin to properly grieve my father's death because I realized at that time, I did not properly grieve them. So I held on to that. And then I was able to, to explore that area and then see that same process lay, played out over and over in the men around me, like men unable to mourn in some way, whether that their wives and kids have moved on or a loved one has passed away or they've been moved from one prison to another and lost friends in the process. So I saw this whole process of grief and loss. And after I went in with a therapist, I actually put a syllabus together and submitted it to the prison psychologist. And we were actually able to create the prison's first ever grief and loss group. From there, I saw how much healing it brought to the men around me and that I was instrumental in being part of that. So then I don't know for that part, it suddenly I felt alive for once in my life. Like here I am, I can make an impact here. And this feels good to give back and be involved in creating things. So then I began getting involved with other groups and the creation of other groups whether that was like victims awareness and, and then of course being fascinated with restorative justice principles and going and in, reading into all of that. And so for myself, it became now I'm at a place in some forgotten corner of the world that nobody knows, but yet I can make an impact and I can do my part in what's good in the world. Um, and I'm alive and yes, I'm in prison, but I do not feel imprisoned. I, I feel absolutely free and I have a purpose while I'm here right now. That's just how I, I, I live for several years. So you get toward the end of your sentence. When did that start to look like that you could be released? And how did you start to think about what 
life would be like outside of prison because you'd been in for a long time. You'd condition yourself to say, I'm in here until I die. Then there's a possibility that you're going to be out and it's a whole new world out there. I knew I didn't fall because they had this thing called the factors of unsuitability, like factors that they will not let you go home on. And I fell in every one of them, whether that's multiple violent crimes, multiple arrests, terrible prison record. And so in seeing that, I go, I don't, this doesn't apply to me. But then after my spare on the razor wire moment, it just became like, wait, this is my purpose here. And I can make something of myself regardless if they're going to grant me parole at the board or not. This is where I found my freedom. And, and freedom is about personal responsibility and owning my choices. And that's what I began to preach and live and breathe while I was there. And I actually began helping other men as they prepared to go to the parole board before I even went to mine. One of my friends had shared with me a parole transcript. And these are every time you go to a hearing, the prison gives you one of these transcripts. But the men in prison don't share these parole transcripts with each other. For some reason, one of my friends had shared with me, he had six transcripts for every hearing he went. And I read it. And as I read it, it opened my eyes like, wait, this is what's going on in there. And I go, this is, I think I can help him go home. And as I sat down with him, you know, of course, people thought we were crazy. They said, what are you, what are you guys doing? And he tells them, oh, Quan's helping me prepare for the pro board. And they say, how can Quan help you when he's never gone to the pro board? Well, one of our other friends also sat with us. He goes to pro board and gets found suitable and goes home. And that's where it opened up the doors. Then it became a different way of living. And then, but then for me, it was more like, yes, I knew a lot of the men want to sit down with me because they want to go home. And that's fine. But my, for me, it's like, I know this, what feels like this amazing secret inside. And I can't share it with anyone. But yet here I can. Here I can help them find this freedom. So my thing is, I want them to feel free regardless of what happens at the parole board. So your experience with the parole board, you get approved ultimately to go out on the outside. What was that like? By that time, I had read hundreds, hundreds of transcripts of men that had gone to the board. That was one thing I required for each person for me to sit down is like, I need to see this in paperwork, what's being said, how you're saying it. And so I had imagined how it was going to go. But when I went inside, and that was the first time I admitted on the record that, yes, I was the shooter. I lied at trial. So I think that took the parole board by surprise. And the district attorney was like, wait, under what he's admitting here, this man should be on death row. He should not be having a chance for parole right now. It's got to be very scary. You're admitting something that, in a sense, has sort of kept you alive. And it was a big chance to take to speak the truth. And ultimately, the truth helped set you free. Yeah, they did. I mean, because like I made millions of wrong choices over the course of my lifetime. And that's how I ended up capable of committing murder. Well, one of my lines in my book is I was not born a murderer because knowing that I go, okay, if I made a, a million wrong choices to get here, I can begin to make the right choices each day to make my way out of whatever it is, like to be, just become myself. So yeah, when I went pro, yes, it was scary, but I go, it was also something that was so in alignment with how I saw that I wanted to show up in the world. I'm here to hold myself accountable. I'm here to own it all because regardless if they were going to let me go or not, I already felt free. And that is just exactly how it felt to me. It's such a courageous, powerful move, really sort of overwhelming to hear it. You get outside of jail. What does that look like? I'm sure you have to think about how do you support yourself? The, the world is, what, 15 years different? 16 and a half. 16 and a half years different. Uh, depending on when you go in and come out, there's the internet. The cities look different. Everything's a little bit 
strange on that front. You're trying to figure out how to make a living and support yourself. You've got to get reengaged with your family. Talk a little bit about what that was like. That had to be an overwhelming experience for yourself. How did you break it down into manageable parts? Yeah, I, I remember like even inside I had to reflect like that because when they found me suitable, there's a 150-day window. Well, those across the governor's desk and if they approve it and things like that. So my days were spent either because I knew I would most likely never see the vast majority of those men again. So I had to begin my own type of grieving process. But then the other half of me had to also transition, like, what am I, am I going to do? How am I going to rebuild relationships? These are family members and loved ones that perhaps have not seen me for years or only see me in a certain way that like, you know, only remember. And I've changed a lot. You know, I think the first week I slept less than 20 hours, even the first night home, I could not sleep because it was just so quiet. I was used to in the jail, I mean, in prison, the officer walks at night and you can hear the keys jangling and their boots stomping, the men shuffling in their slippers to go to the restroom, the flushing of the toilets, everything. And the house was just absolutely quiet. And it was to me like, wait, this is too quiet. I cannot sleep. Early that morning, I go, okay, you know what? I'm not going to sleep then. I'm just going to make myself some coffee. I was looking for instant coffee because that's all I knew. My brother had a coffee machine. I did not know how to work it. So I looked up the house. There's no instant coffee. I go, okay, let me just maybe watch some TVs and I could fall asleep. Turned on the TV, hundreds and hundreds of channels. And I was so frustrated. I was like, where is just a regular PBS or CBS or ABC? And I didn't know how to navigate that. And it was, yeah, so like little, even like little things like that we take for granted out here. When I released, I had the code for my ticket for my plane, right? So I had to go up to the kiosk and they have like, you know, the letters and the numbers. And I knew, and I saw a touchless one, but I like, I don't know what to do, but I didn't want to go up to anyone like, hey, I just got out of prison. Can you help me? So I just stood around and just watched a few people. I go, okay, I think I know what to do. Then I just went up and just punched in, they issued a ticket. Going home that night, flying home, seeing the most beautiful sunset and watching it. And I, I see like people in the plane taking pictures. And I'm like, man, I wish I had a phone. I wish I could capture these, but not being able to ask anybody for anything. Going to the store for the first time and seeing those self-checkout ones too. And a bunch of things. The very first day, the next day, I remember we went to yoga. Uh, my brother and, sis- and sister-in-law take me to a yoga studio they go to. Because in prison, I go, yeah, I it was part of the, they have a yoga program and I was part of it. But then this is like hot yoga. And so they're doing all these moves and I don't know. And there's all these women in like tight clothing around me. So I have to look to follow. But then part of me feels like so uncomfortable because I haven't been around women in so long. So like all these like weird little things of just adjusting at first. So you've built this really interesting situation with Defy Ventures, and this is how we know each other. I, through a mutual friend, ended up out at Kern Valley State Prison teaching entrepreneurism to the prisoners there, and that's when I heard your story. And you've got a really interesting situation with that. Tell us a little bit about what Defy Ventures does and one of the things that it tries to address with prison populations and giving them skills both inside prison and then getting them ready for outside prison. Yeah, so Defy Ventures is a nonprofit that seeks to transform the lives of men and women with criminal histories through the journey of entrepreneurship. It's a program inside prison that starts inside that works on a lot of entrepreneurship or, or just the lens of entrepreneurship. 
involved with that is also there's quite a bit of character and personal development in the course. It's a seven-month program that we run inside the prisons. I was a part of that program while I was incarcerated. So I continue with the program after I came home. Once somebody comes home, they become part of the post-release where also inside prison, it culminates in them doing a business pitch. And they are judged uh, Shark Tank style by volunteers that come in. That's how you and I went in together. Um, and it's an all-day event. And then they come home. So what we've come to find out at Defy is like the vast majority of, we call them entrepreneurs in training, EITs for short. EITs will come home and they may not want to go on to create a business. That's absolutely fine because just the lens of entrepreneurship, the lessons of grit, and resiliency and pivoting, they are very relevant for their reentry journey. Also, because they have this lens of entrepreneurship, they think like a boss. So I think they bring added value to whatever place that they end up employed at. And I think our numbers speak for itself. 84% of our EITs will have found work within the first 90 days after release. If you look at some studies, Prisoners that somebody that was incarcerated comes home at the one year mark, I think they still have an unemployment rate of something like close to 60%. So we're very proud of those numbers. Recidivism numbers or the rate at which someone goes back to prison, I think depending on the state and which study, it could be anywhere ranging anywhere between 30 up to as high as 50% of people one year after release will go back to prison. Uh, Defy's numbers stand at around 7.2%. And our three-year numbers uh, hovers under 10. So these are great numbers that we're happy about. Well, they're amazing numbers. And my experience with it was transformative. I certainly never set foot in a prison before. And to witness the people, and I'm sure they're, they're screened and the ones who are interested are participating. And so there are people who want to be there. But there was so much, I guess the best word is talent and character amongst people who did horrible things. And it impressed upon me the value of well-thought-out second chances and that to provide the support to help people get back on their feet a little bit, not just in terms of dropping them into a job, but changing the way they think, I just found immense value in it. And your experience really indicates that. There's certainly a, a few prisons in California that you work with. How widespread is Defy's reach at this point? We're a national organization. So yeah, just in Southern California alone, we have seven prisons, three up in Northern California. We're in Washington, Colorado, Illinois, the tri-state area of New York. I think we just broke ground in Louisiana. We're pushing to make a, a broader impact. Nationwide and expanding. For listeners, I strongly encourage you to take a look at what Defy is about. I will have the website and other information in the show notes. Let's get back to the book because I am through it and loved it. And it talks a lot about the experiences you recounted earlier to us. Take us through a little bit about how you got about writing the book. It's an amazing piece of literature in terms of its honesty and emotion. I don't know what I would equate it to because it was just such a very interesting recounting of your thinking as you're going through all these different experiences, all these different powerful experiences that someone like me hasn't even come close to thinking about. Maybe my closest is watching Shawshank Redemption or something like that. And I'm sure you get that a lot. But the fact of the matter is, is that you, you've written a very powerful book. How did you get started with that? And how did you have the courage to put these types of thoughts down on paper? When I was incarcerated and after 
the light came on for me. I noticed when I facilitated groups that it felt like I made the most impact or was most effective when I shared of my own vulnerabilities and my failures and things like that. As a facilitator, it's easy to sit up there and say, this is what you need to do. This is how you need to change yourself and things like that. But I think, I don't think it really sits well with the audience most of the times from, from what I saw. I think the men related more when I shared of my own mistakes and my failures. So that's just how I guess I just always show like, okay, this is how I want to show up and be authentic and be genuine and just speak my truth. I ended up doing a talk out in Colorado called One Last Talk. It's basically if you were to die tomorrow and you had one last talk to give to the world, what would you say? So it was at the one last talk that I was approached about writing a book. And of course, at the time, I was like, man, I'm not sure if I wouldn't. Yes, I, I, I love to write and I've always loved to write. But I remember when I flew, so I had to fly out to Austin and be ready to write. And I remember when they were sending out these homework assignments, who are you writing for? Who's your audience? Who is this? I was like, I don't know what, who my audience is. And I, so I remember I, I called Tucker Max about a week or two before I flew out. And I said, hey, no, I think I messaged him on Facebook. I said, hey, I'm not sure if I have a book in me. I don't think I have an audience in Tucker in Tucker Max Faction just says, Quan, shut the fuck up and just bring your fucking ass out here to Austin. Like, your story is over. So I'm like, okay. So now he, he says everyone, yeah, I had to bitch slap Quan. That's what he said. But, so I remember I, I went out there to Austin, was late, um, trying to, because I Ubered, I Ubered to the wrong address. I Ubered to their corporate address, which was a mailing box. I didn't, uh, I didn't read the email properly to use the, the right address. So I came in late. So everyone was already seated around like this long tables. So we had to sit there and there was this little card that says author. I mean, no, this little white card, we had to write our name. We had to write author on there. I mean, that's what he said. So then they said, okay, you're going to introduce yourself. Say your name, that you're an author, who your book is for, why it's written and stuff like that. So then they started going around and I heard the people introducing themselves. What? Oh my goodness. Like, oh, this, I'm a chief marketing officer of this company. And my book is to help other marketing officers scale out companies to 10x to 500 million or whatever and like going around the table one person more impressive than the next so and i was going to be the last to go and i like i think tucker messed up to let me in there like i don't think i'm supposed to be here so it came to me and i just said you know my name's kwan huin i'm an author i don't know what my book is called i don't know who my book is for i don't even know what i'm going to be writing about but i'm willing to learn so tucker brings me in the room is like how can you not see who your audience is? Like, who's the one group of people in this world that you could talk to that none of those people out there in all their, their experience ever could? So when he said that, I was like, oh, the guy's in prison. And Tucker tells me, like, didn't you say that you were coaching men to the parole board to help them fight, but, but not to parole board, but you wanted them to find their freedom? I was like, yeah. He goes, isn't that what your book should be about? Isn't that, that what your superpower is? I'm like, oh, my God, he's right. And so that's began the process for me. So I, we laid out my process was 250 words a day, six days a week, Monday through Saturday, 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. I was to write. And I began writing. During that time, I was also working at Defy, going to college, and also running my own company. Because Oh, I forgot to mention, like, six months after I paroled, I, I did create my first company, a commercial cleaning company that's still running to this day. So that's what I was doing. And it was just, I remember placing myself back into prison, placing myself back into juvenile hall, 
it was some of the most difficult writing I've ever done. But I think it was also, for me, some of the most healing and rewarding writing I've ever done. Unbelievably cool stuff. And for everyone who's listening, I'm going to have a link to Sparrow and the Razor Wire so you can buy it and read a little bit more about what Quan is up to. We're going to start to wind up here a little bit. Maybe a couple questions or a couple thoughts. If you had a magic wand to change things, what would you change about the criminal justice system, either at the arrest level or at the court level or in the prison level? What are the things that you think are important that would be substantive changes? It doesn't have to be necessarily realistic, but what would you like to see? Let's say somebody commits a crime and does harm. Yes, we remove them from society, but then we look at them as this is somebody that has done harm. So obviously they are hurting in some way. Uh, we're going to bring them back better. So we're going to bring them back healed. So I would create a system, not of punishment, but one of healing and restorative practices. So let's say they're, they're incarcerated, but during this time, let's find out who they are and let's find out how we can best support their hopes and their dreams and find out what their strengths are and their values are and build a program that keeps them away from society while they address whatever is going on in their life and then prepare them for reentry back home to be and to be honored when they come back home. Like this is a long lost member of our community. So let's welcome them back home. Not like how we currently have it where, okay, someone's done their time. Yes, but now they come home and now we begin a second sentence because we blacklist them from finding housing. We do not employ them because of their crime or we don't want them as a neighbor because of their crimes. So that's what I would change. So it'd be like the whole image of what it means for, for someone to commit a crime. Unbelievably brave and interesting stuff. I couldn't be more impressed with your background and what you've accomplished. How do we stay in touch with you? How do listeners find out more about your story and keep up with what you're up to? My uh, website, quanxhuin.com, but it's probably easier to spell sparrowintherazorwire.com. So either one of those will point uh, right up to my website. I mean, get on the mailing list. I, I update people on my current mission of getting my book into every prison in the United States and just what I'm up to. So yeah, they can find me there or they can find me on all social media. It's at quanxhuin also. Has Hollywood come calling, I hope? Yeah, there's a couple of people that have reached out, but... We'll see. I'm not jinxing anything, but your story deserves that kind of platform as well, I think. So, Quan, thank you very much for being on. Honored to have you on here and look forward to watching your career with great interest. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually.